You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Grand Rising and good morning, everybody out there. Welcome to the Morning Update Show. I am your co-host, Trey Holiday, And boy, oh boy, I got to say, we definitely missed y'all last week. Of course, as always, I get to do this with my co-host with the most, my guy, Big O. What's up, Big O? All right, Trey Holiday, what's happening, man? You know what I'm saying? Hey. Uh, it's good to see you again, even virtually. Hey, you too, my friend. It's great to be with you always. How are you today? I'm fantastic. I'm here in Houston, Texas today. You know, I've been down here for the last few days. Before before we jump everything off here, man, I got it. Today is my daughter Victoria's birthday. Let me, let me put this up. 12 years old today. And so we were just down here in uh in Houston, hanging out and everything else. And I'll be honest with you, with this warm weather and sunshine here, y'all might not, <laughs> you might not see me. And we're actually, the Mariners play the Astros tonight at Minute Maid Stadium. So that's where we're going to be tonight, me and Victoria for her birthday. We're going to go see the M's beat up on the Astros tonight. Look, right out there. Look, you can't stay away from the M's no matter where you are. Oh, it's a beautiful thing, man. Happy, happy birthday, Victoria. Enjoy your time with Pops tonight at the field. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, and, and also to all of our, our, our Muslim brothers and sisters out there, May Man Salman, Eid Mubarak. You know what I'm saying? Mubarak is blessings. So Eid blessings to everybody. You know what I'm saying? As Ramadan comes to an end, we want to make sure and get that in there. Yeah, right on. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, we got a great show lined up today. We got Brett Hamill. And Brett, Brett's a cartoonist, a comedian over at the South Seattle Emerald. And, you know, every time, last time Brett was on here, you and Brett had a, a like a, a real heavy conversation. It started with cartoons, but it went kind of heavy, man. So got another strip, comic strip here from Brett. Um, we'll be talking about that. And also we've got Yolanda Norton from the Beyonce Mass. Yolanda is the creator and curator of the, of the Beyonce masses. Quite a few people talking about this, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm hearing about it in the streets. I'm really excited to dive in deep with Yolanda so we can hear a lot of the origin story. You know, people always want to know what brought this to be. So I'm really excited to dive in with her today. And I know people are going to be excited to see the show on Friday. Yes, they will. All right. Well, let's let's get it going. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, got a little rusty. It's, it's been it's been a few days for me. But here we go. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Morning Update Show. Want to remind you that right now, right now is a perfect time to tag and share the stream. Go ahead and tag and share the stream with people you feel would appreciate culturally relevant news and information emanating from right there in the Emerald City. Want to give a big shout out to our partners over at KBCS 91.3 at Bellevue College and also the South Seattle Emerald. Reminding everybody that you can listen to the Morning Update show anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm talking about SoundCloud, Google, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere. All you have to do is search Converge Media Network. Also, Trey Holiday, whew, man, COVID's still here. And this is, this is, man, I know a few other people that just got, they got COVID. They got a bad COVID too. But um, want to uplift this resource here for us while. Dot org here for us wild.org culturally curated um content information really really kind of targeting those in our community who are vaccine hesitant got a lot of questions but also a lot of other resources there as well 
Yeah, I think that, you know, with so many different things changing, you know, uh, at a federal level, um, at local levels, it's important for people to stay engaged and up to date on the information. And you are right. Oh, you know, COVID is still out here. It's alive and well. I mean, I, I'm attending events where they're like, look, come with your vaccine, come with your negative COVID test. We're going to rapid test you at the door. I mean, it is serious. Yeah. You know, when you're thinking about, you know, large gatherings and even being on the plane, I still saw many people wearing their masks, my friend. I'm sure you have as well. Let, let me tell you. Well, one, Texas is a little bit different. I don't <laughs> see nothing. You know, the whole time I never, I've, you know, coming down here throughout COVID, I never really saw like a, a big push, push on, on masks and everything. But yeah, on the airplane, it, it's, it's interesting because it's a lot of people who just go up to random people who's wearing a mask and be like, oh, why are you wearing a mask? And I'll be like, man, come on, dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, man, I'm with you this morning through the headlines. So let's let's get going with that. Uh, first up here, this is coming to us from Capitol Hill, Seattle blog. Our buddy, uh, Justin Carter, Sound Transit overhauls fair enforcement policies to address economic and racial equity and thousands of riders. It says do not pay. The Sound Transit Board of Directors, including Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell, have approved long-awaited changes to the system's fair enforcement policies. Uh, last Thursday, the board approved changes that will revise policies for its light rail trains and buses to increase warnings and reduce fines, and importantly, move enforcement from security officers in efforts intended to address concerns over equity and racial disparity. Um, here in the Capitol Hill Seattle blog, they reported here that in January, uh, Sound Transit reported 42% were riding without having paid Sound, uh, without having paid, Sound Transit says. Um, it depends on revenues for 40% of its planned operating budget, but actual collective revenues fall short. So one thing there is, I mean, we've we've been hearing a lot about sound transit and about affairs and about fines. And one of the things that we're talking about is that the, the old fine policy really, you know, could end up in court and have fines that you can't pay and some everything else also balanced against the system where they're saying that 42 percent of riders aren't paying and that's not sustainable in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the data that we saw early on, too, was, you know, when we talk about racial equity, it was targeting uh, black community. We saw that there um, through some of their ticketing. Uh, we saw that in terms of the court cases involved uh, with those restrictions. So this is something that's going to be interesting. You know, how do they balance it out? Obviously, they need people to pay. But, you know, um, there's also hard economic hardship for many folks and they still need to get to and from. And so, you know, public transit is one of those things. I mean, we, we, I know you've seen this in other countries oh, where, you know, public transit is, you know, paid through other means, right? It's not necessarily always that you have to pay a fare to get on. It would be interesting to see how they deal with this. Um, also too, you know, I think uh, large institutions, large employers and schools um, and, and, and the like have an opportunity to provide, you know, uh, fare cards or transit passes to students and to staff. So we'll see how maybe, you know, those kinds of partnerships can increase so that Sound Transit can get the, the much needed revenue it needs to continue its operations. Yeah, I see Emily Stockman's comment there uh, talking about back and back in the day, giving the transfers. I, I remember I used to get off the bike, you get a transfer, you'd be done. You'd be like, oh, anybody, <laughs> anybody need a transfer? 
that system is is long gone though um these yeah. days and you know this is something that i mean as as sound transit continues to be ambitious in their goals of expanding further across the region i mean this is sound transit is a massive organization billions and billions of dollars but you know one way or another they they have to figure out this issue here but that um the fact that they're looking at now, like reducing the, the actual fines to go to court and things, you know, I mean, it will keep people basically out of the system. Um, but yeah. overall, how it's going to work as far as funding sound transit, if they're not getting the revenues, definitely needs to be addressed. This is something right here. This is from our partners over at the South Seattle Emerald. And I wanted to bring this up. This is. Chino y Chicano podcast, Washington State's alert system for missing indigenous women. And this is the, the podcast. I was on this podcast before. This is what Enrique Cerna and Matt Chan said on March 31st, Washington Governor Jay Inslee signed into law a, uh, a bill that created the first in the nation's uh, statewide alert system for missing indigenous people. State Representative Deborah Likanoff sponsored the bill. Likanoff is a Democrat who represents the 40th uh, legislation district, and that's in Anacortes. And I bring this up because we had talked about this before, and we actually had um, State Representative Likanoff on the morning update show. And I wanted to just play this real quick. Um, and this was, you know, it, it caught my attention when we were talking about, you know, the, the topic being um, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And what she said is that in native country, they also have a talk, you know, like as black folk, we say we, we have a talk, especially with our young boys, but in native country, they have a talk with young girls. And this is a conversation we're told as, as young uh, native girls uh, who look like me and sound like me. You have to know at a very young age, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, growing up, um, you need to know what your name is and how to spell it. You have to memorize phone numbers. You have to know what street you live on. You have to know where your auntie and your grandma's streets are. Because if you were ever to be grabbed, you have to be able to know that if you find, if you get away and you can find help, or if someone hears you scream enough, loud enough, and they find you, that you can tell them what your name is and what the phone number is and where you live. So they will contact my mom and I'll be found. People of color have had that conversation. You, my friend, probably have had a conversation that not other boys, little boys have had about being careful and protecting yourself. And that is the same conversation that I had when I was a little girl. And it's the same conversation I have with my daughter. It is the survival of Native American women that is so important for me with this bill. You ask, let's put a humanitarian thought to a number. United States is gonna be coming up on its 250th year. For 250 years, Native American women and people have been ripped from their families in their own country as first Americans. They've been killed, murdered. We've gone through termination. We've gone through the red skin scalping. We've gone through being kicked out of our own homelands. We've been told you either have to be Native or you have to be American. During this time of colonism, we're gonna come up after 250 years and still say today that Native American women and people are still facing this threat. We're still being murdered. We're still 
being taken. We are still going missing. We are still in, intertwined into the human trafficking. A Native American woman is four times more likely to go missing than a white woman. A Native American woman is the, has the highest of all races in Washington state and across the United States. We're the most likely to go missing and murdered. So I know we don't wanna just talk about numbers, but these numbers keep growing. And after 250 years, we're still facing this crisis today. My daughter looks at me as I travel alone oftentimes and says, mom, don't forget to go, not to go out after dark by yourself. Mom, be careful where you go. I still have to say the same thing to her. And so Salman has put the link in the comments there, South Seattle Emerald. You can listen to the whole podcast there um, with Representative uh, Lickenoff. But yeah, I mean, when we when we first played this back in March, it kind of grabbed me when you, when you think about the numbers and everything. Absolutely. And the way that she breaks it down is so clear, you know, for for all of us to hear that. I mean, this is something that we're talking about, you know, uh, at the inception of this country and still continuing to this day. We have to continue to raise the flag on this because honestly, you know, we know that we're dealing with uh, a large amount of numbers right here in Washington state you know, us being one of the top states in the country when it comes to missing Seattle, number one. girls. Yeah, we, we're number one. I mean, so we really do have to be raising the flag here. I think all Washingtonians need to be aware of this. Yeah, it's good stuff. And yeah, the alert system is up and running. Actually, we, we got some other follow-up stuff that's coming, uh, coming on air here in the next few weeks. Man, this is a big one here. You shout out to your people. This is in the Seattle Times this morning. Um, how Wanawari uses art to eliminate the central district and keep black residents in their homes. This is from Gerald Puris. Before pandemic closures hit, Wanawari was hosting community events nearly every day, from yoga to birthday parties to food pop-ups and book readings. The central district's organization was quickly becoming a go-to neighborhood art spot before the pandemic forced it to shift. With new programming ideas, taking shape over the last two years. Wanawari is starting to get booked up again, further entrenching itself as a Seattle cultural hub. Yes. You know what? Shout out to everybody over at Wanawari. This is such an amazing community cultural space. The story of Wanawari is just uh, gripping as well. When you're talking about a family home and figuring out a way to continue that uh, legacy of ownership in in the uh, Wakoma family. This is just a beautiful story all around. You know, for Inye um, to, to bring together a team to have a, a centralized vision of how to, you know, curate this space so that it then becomes an art space. And not only are they doing it for Wanawari, but they've also embarked on a complete study of the Central District to try to ensure that this is now Wanawari becomes a model uh, for Central District residents, uh, particularly Black residents and homeowners to find ways to keep those homes in their families. And so it creates an amazing model. That's something that I love seeing because as we have one, 
we can have many and the ideas that everybody can create a very specific space in their family home, you know, share that love with the community, embrace other opportunities to uh, showcase art and artistry uh, within and outside of the community. Wandamari is doing it at a top level, man. And I'm just so uh, proud to see them being honored like this in the Seattle Times. It's very, very much uh, needed and deserved. Oh, one time for Wadawari, for the culture. Yeah. All right. Now, this <laughs> is something this is something that, that I saw. I saw you all over the Internet on this story <laughs> right here. This is also from our our buddies over there at the South. I mean, what the Capitol Hill. So we got lots of buddies here, but this is the Capitol Hill Seattle blog. Village Garden, Seattle's first community preference homes, ready to hit Central District real estate market. Uh, Trayana Holiday was on hand last week to cut ribbon in front of the new Village Gardens development, where 10 of the new homes are reserved for low-income restricted buyers and six are being sold at market rate in a project built on land provided by the City of Seattle for affordable housing. Um, the, the, and funded by the public investment of $2.3 million, including $1.2 million from the Seattle Housing Levy. The homes will be the first in the city to be sold under community preference policy, creating opportunity for those with historic ties to the neighborhood, the first opportunity to purchase. And now, man, I go way, way back. I was on the original committee. This was years ago when they were thinking of a name. And <laughs> it, was, it was lots of different cultural groups that were, were involved. It, it looks like Village Gardens was the one that, that settled on it. But more importantly, tell us a little bit about the project, Trey. Yeah, this is amazing. And, and trust and believe your name was also uh, read among uh, so many others who are a part of this effort. You know, shout out to everybody who's been involved. I know Homestead Community Land Trust really leading and connecting in, in partnership with the Africatown Community Land Trust, who has been doing this work in the Central District to provide opportunities for displaced residents to return. Um, you know, I'll say that the leadership and Kathleen over at Homestead Community Land Trust really understood the need to embrace a lot of community, community organizations, a community-rooted approach to uh, Village Gardens with all of the efforts of Village Gardens, starting from uh, not just the naming, but also, you know, creating a home ownership program in partnership with Africatown Community Land Trust to uh, ensure that people who would be uh, applying for these homes understood, you know, how to become a homeowner and moving from a renter to a homeowner. You know, we've talked about community preference policy, Omari, you and I have. We were on uh, several campaigns of community preference, but all of those were for affordable housing. This is different because it's affordable home ownership and it provides an opportunity for families who may be, you know, just in that still in that level of lower than, you know, the average amount of area median income, being able to now take uh, opportunity to invest in their family and to provide generational wealth. Um, we know that home ownership is such a leg up in that regard. And so I was just talking about Wanawari being a model. So is Village Gardens. Um, it's something that I said 
there at the ribbon cutting uh, with Mayor Harrell and, and KY King Garrett himself. Also, uh, City Council Member Teresa Mosqueda was in the building. We were talking about not only the, the need for this to be in the city of Seattle, but also that there was a lot of work on the policy side to bring community preference into play. And so just shout out to everybody who's been involved. This has been a real huge community effort. And I'm so grateful that a part of my energy got to be a participant and help to shape this entire opportunity for folks to return, not just to the Central District, but to return as homeowners, which is just incredible all around. Also got to give a huge shout out to Nicole Bascom of Bascom Realty, who's been involved in this as well um, in bringing her real estate knowledge to the table uh, to help people understand how to become homeowners. So it just was an incredible feat. Oh, and, and I was just honored to be able to be there. And uh, that Mayor Harold share, shared the scissors with me. I got a little bit of the scissor piece right there, cutting that ribbon. Hmm. You got some scissor, huh? He gave you a little piece. <laughs> just a sliver of scissor. <laughs> well, why we see Brad Hamill laughing back there in the green room? <laughs> hey, we're running a few minutes behind, Brad. So bear with me. Right? Last thing right here. <clears throat> Last thing right here before I cut you loose, Trey Holiday. You know, we got to give a big shout out to our partners over at the South Seattle Emerald celebrating eight years of excellence. Last Thursday, man, they had a big celebration online, man. It was great. Man, lots of speakers and guests and music and everything else. And just wanted to play a short clip right here. This is Marcus Harrison Green, publisher of the South Seattle Emerald, talking about their eight years of service, commitment, and dedication to community. Welcome to our celebration of the eighth anniversary of the South Seattle Emerald. My name is Marcus Harrison Green, and I am the founder and publisher of the Emerald. I've heard it said that a community is a people and not a place, but that is only partially true. Because you see, a community is a story of a people. It's tales of their overcoming, triumphs, and aspirations that bring a community fully into being. It is only through story that a community can be given the texture of complexity, the hue of humanity, and the frame of multidimensionality. It is in community where we learn how to be loved and return that love in kind. It is in community where our highest and most authentic selves can be seen. It is in community where we can be made whole again and again and again after being broken. It is in community where no matter how lost and bewildered we may be, it is in community where we find home and a place of unconditional belonging. In these past eight years, I've witnessed the emeralds gleam upon the stories of this community, revealing a place of nourishment, hope, infinite possibility, and most of all, a people who are ever thriving. Being able to tell the stories of South Seattle these past eight years has been a pleasure and a privilege without parallel. And our story, our collective story is far from over. In the years to come, we will continue to create ripples that make waves of change throughout our community and this country. In the years to come, we will continue to ignite sparks that combat all the darkness that is around us. I very much look forward to it. Thank you. All right, congratulations to the South Seattle Emerald. Eight years. 
Oh my goodness, congratulations, South Seattle Emerald. This is huge news. And uh, you know, over here on the Morning Update Show, we love to big up anniversaries. This is huge. Eight years marks a, a tremendous feat. Uh, you know, thinking about the the inception of South Seattle Emerald and where it is today, it's just blossomed in such an amazing way. And uh, we just appreciate the work happening over there from the entire team. Uh, and shout out to you, Marcus, for this vision and for bringing it through to where it is today. Just incredible. All right. Good stuff. I'm going to cut you loose here, Trey Holiday, and hand it back over to Salman. Have a great show with Brett Hamill and Yolanda Norton, and I'll catch you tomorrow morning. Absolutely. Oh, enjoy your day with your daughter and enjoy that ballpark. I know you will. <laughs> Let's go, Ams. Hey there, it's Trey Holiday. And of course, Besa and I had to take a trip back to Market Street Shoes to grab some items. They always know what to show us. And let me tell you, we both spent quality time to be sure we collected some amazing additions to our wardrobes. They have some of the most unique bags, shoes, and accessories. I mean, the whole shebang. It's always a good time when I get to shop with my girl, Basa. Make sure you go check out Market Street Shoes, y'all, and you too can walk out with some dope gear. The breathtaking new musical, Afterwards, is the story of the art we make from the love that shapes us. When three women discover unexpected truths, a dazzling mosaic of intersecting lives reveals itself. Featuring a revelatory and soulful new score. Don't miss the world premiere of this captivating new musical, Afterwards, at the Fifth Avenue Theater, April 29th to May 21st. Tickets at fifthavenue.org. The thing about Blue Cone is I never, like, I never wanted it to be a space where artists just come in and have their own little box and don't relate with each other. Sure. You know, like, I've always been very collaborative, community interested, like, hey, let's do a bigger project. Let's do something that we can all be a part of. I think I just, I've always just wanted to make art with other people. Mm -hmm. Welcome back, everybody, to the Morning Update Show. I'm your co-host, Trey Holiday, And joining me right now, I know we got that motion graphic, so we're going to go ahead and play it right now because uh, right now I get to talk to Brett Hamill, cartoonist, and uh, you know what? He's hilarious. Uh, we so appreciate you for being here, Brett. Come on, man. Brett, what's good this morning? Not much. I got my own motion graphic. Yeah, you have your own motion graphic. We had to make sure it got utilized, man. And because we appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. And, you know, as always, you're coming with a cartoon that's going to spark conversation. We already know it is. Uh, why don't you go ahead and set it up for the audience? Sure. Um, as, as it usually does, most of my cartoons come from just seeing something in the local news that's so infuriating that I feel like I have to address it in some way. So. Um, this was last week's cartoon, and it was basically this idea that you've been seeing all this coverage of like Third and Pine, it's insanity, you know, or Twelfth and Jackson, things are going crazy. And um, people who have lived here for more than like a year are like, yeah, Third and Pine has always been a little dicey in terms of downtown, and 
12th and Jackson has kind of always been that way. So why is it now of paramount importance to let everyone know that things are terrible at those spots? And then, of course, if you dig a little deeper, you also see that there's like even more of a backstory to like what exactly happened to certain like crime corners and such that isn't necessarily just that a bunch of like crime zombies converged upon them. It's that like things happened, you know, on a much higher level due to capitalism that create these conditions. So I think that's probably way too much backstory, but yeah, I can, I can, uh, I'll walk you through the cartoon. No, I think that was just enough, Brett. So uh, right now we'll go ahead and have you walk us through it. I appreciate the backstory. And I think uh, particularly because we are dealing with a city where we see a lot of influx of, you know, transplants, people coming from all over. It's good for them to understand that history. This is something that may be known to a lot of Seattleites, but not so much to those who are just now coming into the area and who have maybe some of those ideas that they're seeing kind of hit major media or some of these other kind of, uh, you know, outside media out outlets, whether it be social media or whatever, whatever accounts they're following. So some of that is really needed in terms of context. Go ahead and walk us through it, Brett. Okay. I'm downtown at the Nano Clouder building where the company says it's leaving due to crime concerns. There have been numerous broadcasts like that. Excuse me, do you have any idea what you're talking about? Nana Clowder moved here just four years ago, displacing a beloved mom-and-pop sandwich shop on the ground floor. Then they got bought out by a private equity firm that laid off 70% of their employees. Then COVID hit and they switched to work from home. Then they got millions in federal relief money and used it to buy a smaller office in Bellevue. No one has used this building in over two years, which you'd know if you did even the most basic research. Stop turning stories about the routine behavior of parasitic capitalists into anti-homeless fear porn, you soulless hack. I'm downtown at the recently vacated Nanoclouder building where I was just violently accosted by a raving drug-addicted homeless person. <laughs> Brett. I mean, come on, man. I saw this and I just thought, absolutely. Why are we seeing this trend? I mean, I can talk about the fact that we understand in terms of media, particularly, uh, we've seen this in television, but I think it's been um, exponentiated with the rise of social media and digitization of, you know, that kind of televised media or things that were in newspapers. But, you know, I, I think clickbait is a huge issue here. And we have these, um, you know, fragmented messages that that are really there for certain outskirts of the population. Just tell me more about this, because it's unfortunate that this is even a real thing, Brett. I mean, the other the other point in there is that we've been in a pandemic for a couple of years, a few years now. And what we're seeing is um, the, the storyline, the story arc of like the reaction to the 2020 George Floyd protests kind of ramming home with this new right-wing storyline that like um democrat-run cities are like burning hell holes and you you know so now what you're seeing is that everything that uh is the result of covid like businesses leaving downtown uh for example because there's no people working in the office buildings to buy their soup or whatever um 
Now they're blaming that on like the people who wanted to defund the police. So it's like this lawless city tried to defund the police department. And now look at it. It's like scourged with crime and fire. And, you know, we're just seeing the convergence of like multiple storylines, all of which are like part of a concerted effort by the national right wing, you know, sort of media puke funnel um, just being used to lash out at whoever, you know, whoever is the the victim du jour, whether it's like the, the Black Lives Matter protesters demanding police accountability and now their hands are tied and they don't have any money anymore. And now all this crime is running rampant. Obviously we know that like SPD was never defunded at all. Um, so like, it's just, you know, and then of course the, the scary thing is like, it's not surprising that local news broadcasters will kind of trumpet these storylines of like crime and sensationalism. What's scary is that our elected officials like the mayor, like are going along with it. And they're saying, yeah, we've got to take care of all these crime corners. I mean, Bruce Harrell knows that there's always been crime downtown and third and pine. That's nothing new, you know, um, or 12th and Jackson are the ones like that. He literally like days after um, Jonathan Cho and some of these other newscasters did did broadcast from there, he showed up and said, we're going to clean it up. So he's like playing into this whole narrative, which is ultimately a part of this larger right wing, you know, cities are hell holes, um, you know, Democrats defunded the police, et cetera. And it just, you know, sometimes it's, you see, you hear this stuff and it just washes over you and you're like, I can't believe the media disinformation landscape we live in here. You know, obviously that's why I have a lot of love for you guys and the South Seattle Emerald and anyone else that's actually trying to like deconstruct these, these narratives that aren't, aren't necessarily true and aren't people that live here don't necessarily, you know, yeah, crime is bad, but like, I can think of other times when, you know, crime didn't just start last year, you know? Yeah, that's exactly the point there, Brett. And I, I really appreciate, you know, your approach um, to the work that you do because it's so necessary. I mean, we're talking about the fact that, again, you just mentioned it right there. All of these different narratives kind of converging, so to speak, into something that's now this massive uh, array of, of disinformation. And people have to understand, too, there's a difference between misinformation and disinformation. Disinformation is intentional, right? It's as if you know the people that are weaving these messages actually understand that that's not the case but there's a large amount of people who don't understand that right and so when they hear these narratives they think that that's exactly the way that it is that oh my goodness all of this stuff is kind of you know uh lapsing on each other this is an issue that must be dealt with right now i think you're also absolutely right in terms of when we have you know opportunities to dismantle this disinformation tactic it's not happening if we see our mayor out there talking about cleaning up certain corners you are right we that have lived in seattle even if you've been here for the last 10 years you have seen these corners of our city um, be what they are and to be honest you know, people could talk about crime and they could talk about this or that that happens there. But I want to bring in the fact that they also create their own communities oftentimes. And there is a culture uh, of, of these kind of areas where th they all know each other. You know, if you really like Omari says all the time, if you spend time and talk to, to these folks, you will understand they got their own kind of thing going on. And 
And it's one of those things where I always think about the unaffordability of a city and how it also generates the opportunity for these kinds of hubs to be that much more created. I mean, so there is a wide variety, a variety of kind of responsibility and accountability here. And unfortunately, I see that these narratives are being uh, strung together by people who are not spending any time at all on these streets to understand a lot of those nuanced dynamics, Brett. Yeah, and to to the point about um, you know they they I saw in one of the news broadcasts they were saying and uh, Tobias Coughlin Bogue for Real Change uh, broke this down in an article recently. Um, they were saying like you know Amazon is pulling out of this building because the crime's just so bad. And then when you actually go back and and research it, even like Google for five minutes, you realize like that office building has been empty because of COVID and everyone's working from home and they haven't made everyone come back yet. There's no you know. There was no one there to get crimed on anyways, like they, they were working from home. And so every time you parse this apart, you realize that it's like, you know, that there's like real estate developers making moves um, that would benefit from, you know, certain narratives taking hold. And, you know, ultimately, it just you'd see the police department become like the arm shock troops of like capitalism and you know, protecting the holdings of these venture cap, you know, these private equity firms and such. Um, and that's the real story, right? The real story isn't like, the real story is why are these people being impacted this way? Um, what are the conditions that allowed that to happen, um, that allowed this building to go vacant? You know, maybe because someone's sitting on it to, to make an even bigger payday. Like, we are just look at the ground level, like this guy's trying to sell a bottle of vodka on the street corner. Who cares? Yeah. You know? <laughs> this is exactly what I'm talking about. I think in the uh, larger scope of things, um, and these things are, you know, now have a magnifying lens on them, right? Where it's like, oh my goodness, they're this massive. But really, these are things that we've been dealing with. I grew up in the Central District. I was dealing with this kind of stuff my entire life. I have seen it over and over again, whether it was on Gessler, whether it moved down to Jackson and it migrates over here to Union. I've seen this stuff. So the ideas of coming in and cleaning up the city, you know, actually, as we've heard from people that are dealing with these folks and these kind of tent cities and encampments, they're just moving from one place to another. It's the same people. So whether you go and you move them over here and you clean up 12th and Jackson, you're cleaning it up in the next week, they're there again. It's the same individuals. And again, I always say, where are the services? And I really appreciate your work because you're dismantling the notion that, you know, this is what it is, that these characteristics need to be wiped away because honestly, um, they are unfortunately not really true when you get out here in the streets. And it just reminds me of, you know, the, the protest movement and, you know, national coverage saying, oh my goodness, the CHOP era, this is, you know, it's a lawless, you know, uh, opportunity here for people to come and commit crimes and this and that. And it's like, if you spent time there, you would see that there was a lot of mutual aid, a lot of services, a lot of people helping people. That's what we experienced on the ground. So it's just, uh, it's so needed. Your work is so needed, Brett. I just appreciate it. Make sure you tell folks how they can catch up with you and find more of your work. Oh, sure. Yeah. You can check out uh, the Sunday comics every Sunday up on uh, South Seattle Emerald on the website, their Instagram, et cetera. You can follow me on Instagram, Brett Hamill Comics with an X. Um, you can also buy my latest collection of um, greatest hits from the Sunday comics called Bye Bye Tear Gas Jenny. 
Um, and heck, next week you're going to be able to even come to my uh, live comedy show at the Clockout Lounge on Wednesday, um, and and see, you know enjoy some live comedy. So I've got plenty of things to sling this week. Amazing, Brett. Thank you so much for being here. And shout out to you and your comedy show. I know you're going to kill it, bro. Great, great work. We so appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Trey. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man, that guy keeps the, the funnies coming. And it's so necessary because they're poignant and they are on point. And you know what? As we told you, it's going to be another great episode on this magnificent Monday. I get to continue in that greatness with Yolanda Norton coming up next. We got Reverend Yolanda Norton in the building. We're going to be talking about all things Beyonce Mass. Stay tuned after this short break. You're watching the Morning Update Show. When COVID first hit, I was very afraid. It was so much things that I had to keep inside because I didn't know where to place my feelings. Most of my information for COVID is from my own research. I'm a doctor in educational leadership. And when the FDA approved Pfizer, it helped me realize that the vaccination is healthy. We don't want to be left behind because we're not taking the vaccine. But we want to get as much information as possible so that we are putting ourselves in better hands and not at great risk. The thing about Blue Cone is I never, like I never wanted it to be a space where artists just come in and have their own little box and don't relate with each other. Sure. You know, like I've always been very collaborative, community interested, like, hey, let's do a bigger project. Let's mm. do something that we can all be a part of. I think I just, I've always just wanted to make art with other people. Mm -hmm. Oh, my brother, the truth for proof on Tuesdays. Uh, gotta love that Converge allows all of us to explore our creativity. And you know what? Beyonce Mass is another exploration of creativity. Indeed, creative worship. Welcome, Yolanda Norton. Hi, Reverend Yolanda. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for making time in your busy schedule. I mean, Absolutely. putting something like this together has got to be literally massive. Tell us about kind of this origin story of Beyonce Mass and you understanding the need to kind of bring worship in this way. Yeah, so my primary profession is as a professor of religion. So I teach Hebrew Bible, and I'm really concerned with how Black women encounter scripture and how our identity is formed by it. So I teach a class called Beyonce in the Hebrew Bible, and we do that work in the class. And, you know, as a professor, you don't get to determine who's in your classroom. So my initial assignment was I want everybody to flex the muscle of what it means to center Black women in a worship service to tell our stories, to talk about our survival, because even for Black women, we're not used to centering ourselves. Right. So we did this as a worship service at the school where I was teaching at the time. We got invited to do it at a church in San Francisco, and we were supposed to have 100 people there, and 1,000 people showed up, and it went viral. And so it really has given us the opportunity for the past four years to be all over the world doing this kind of womanist worship service and celebrating Black women. This is phenomenal. Thank you. Oh, my word. I mean, you know, it, it's got to be one of those things where it's like you had maybe a vision, obviously, for the class. And for it to explode like this, I can't wait to talk to you after we show this clip um, of Beyonce Mass. I can't wait to just really dive into what that means for you. But before we do that, we'll let the audience kind of get a take a little bit about Beyonce Mass. You guys awesome. get to see it at Kennedy Center. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> 
not gonna give up, I'm not gonna stop, I'm gonna work harder, I'm a survivor, I'm gonna make it, I will survive, keep on surviving. Welcome, welcome to the Beyonce Mass. I am Reverend Yolanda Norton. I'm so glad to be with you here this evening. We want to welcome you to this Christian worship experience. This is womanist worship. This is, this is worship. No, that's right. We like that energy. Come on, keep it live. This is womanist worship, a worship that privileges, understands the realities, the stories, the struggles of black women. As I said, I don't know what it took for you to be here today, but we are so glad that you were here. If you have never felt seen before, know that we see you. If you have never felt loved before, know that we love you. If you have never felt like you were a part of something, you are a part of something here. And it's not because of anything that any of us have done. This is the love of God. Amen. I don't know what your vision of the church is, but we have decided that no matter your race, your age, your gender, no matter who you love, you are the thing that God had in mind when she looked out over the world and said, it is good. So we don't do Frozen Chosen here. This is Nacho Grandma's church. Sing as loud as you can. Dance, clap, love, live, understand this worship. You are welcome here. I get the chills about this, Reverend Yolanda. I mean, thank you. Uh, you, you know, you're talking about, okay, I have a vision for my class. Okay, we're going to do this thing. And then it blows up like this. And you're talking about now four years later. Just tell us a little bit about how that's been sitting with you. I mean, it's a, overwhelming at times, right? Like to to think about the fact that they're that we were talking about something. We were having a conversation. I was imagining something that actually people were needing, right? Not just in San Francisco, not in my classroom, but all over the world that people needed to hear a different view and vision of who God is and how the church functions. And so it has been heartwarming, amazing, overwhelming to continue to have this conversation. And every time I think, oh, maybe this is going to be it, maybe people are over the Beyonce mass, other communities call, other communities invite us into their space, and we're really grateful to continue to have these conversations about what it means for Black women to be God's work in the world. You know, this is something that resonates with me as a Black woman. I mean, seriously, it does. I um, have, you know, had a Christian background. I really have uh, been moving into this kind of African spirituality, understanding some of the original things that our ancestors did. And the ideas of it being, you know, all of us being so intentional in terms of our pathway in the world, our purpose and what we bring to the world is so true. And more people need to understand that it's not by accident that they are here. And I really appreciate when you said, look, it's not a show. This is worship. Yeah. Tell us a bit about what you really want the audience to experience when they come to worship and, and experience Beyonce Mass? So for, for me, what's important is that from beginning to end of worship, uh, the worship experience, we are intentional about narrating a God who pulls people in and doesn't push people out. Mm -hmm. So we talk about Christianity being um, 
having the potential to be loving, inclusive, affirming of people's identities. And so that's what I want people to experience. I don't want people to feel like if they dance or if they sing or if they clap, that that's God, God's going to come down and strike them with lightning. This is really about talking about God's hospitality, God's love and doing the thing that black women do, which is love and care and nurture one another and other people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and and of course, I would be remiss if I don't ask. I mean, you know, as, as, as someone who appreciates Beyonce, uh, how was it that it was like, look, we we gotta we gotta throw Beyonce in here. We're gonna do something that's really you know resonating with the work of Beyonce and and the way that her music is kind of hit the rest of the world. So for me, the Beyonce piece was because so uh, she's a year older than I am. So for for my whole life, her music has provided. Um, a soundtrack for my experiences. I can, based on the song, whether we're talking about Destiny's Child or Beyonce's solo album, um, I can track parts of my life that way. And I think that's the case for a lot of Black women, right? Like you you can think about where you were when Single Ladies came out or when Lemonade dropped. And so um, that was one piece. It was also a piece of, um, we think about Beyonce as unique and she is, she is magnificent and all of her musicality and her dancing her creativity. But when we look at the things that Beyonce has done, it lives in the lineage of Black women. Mm. Um, and so I wanted us in worship, I didn't, I didn't want us to deal with hymns or gospel music because I didn't have time in my semester to unpack the racism and the sexism that's in the liner notes of that music. So you let Black women tell Black women's story. So you have a Black female artist who has been able to transcend so many spaces, guide us through this Christian worship experience. It's a great way to do it. And Thank it's you. such a unique, I think, uh, perspective and approach to worship. But you are right in that regard. I think about somebody like my mother who has had her, you know, Beyonce of her era. Right. And, and that's so true for so many of us. And, and particularly when we think about how music resonates with us as people, um, you know, and how it connects us, brings us together. Um, it's a great, great, I think, basis for what you all are doing now. Now, this then took a whole team. Uh, you got to talk to us about how you've been able to formulate a solid team to travel the world with you and, and bring Beyonce Mass to all of these regions of the world. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, my mom always told me, when you find good people, you keep them with you. And so really, as we've been on this journey um, around the world, we've we've picked up artists. We have uh, Afro-Portuguese singers, um, my bass player who was my who was in the first Beyonce in the Hebrew Bible class. Um, so we've got this hodgepodge of people who travel with us, but it's also really important that if we're going to go into a community, that when we go into that community, we pull together a coalition of people who are rooted in that space. So the conversations that we are having, worship should be relevant and local and all of those things. So we really count on our community partners to help us do that work. So we got an initial uh, invitation from University Congregational UCC two years ago to think about this. Of course, the pandemic kept moving that back. Um, and we said to them, we're happy to come at your invitation, but we need to build a bigger and broader community. We need to know where the Black women are. We need to know where Black folks are talking about these things. And so we've pulled in Acts on Stage. It's amazing work um, that's happening with uh, Michelle Ling Raymond. We've also been working with um, the WOW Gallery. So all these people who have this kind of... Um, 
cocentric energy who really love and appreciate black women and have an ability to see God as more than in a tall steeple white church are people that were uh, who are helping us do this work in Seattle. I just uh, appreciate that approach because I think uh, oftentimes there isn't enough local collaboration and it is necessary when you're talking about really curating the experience, uh, particularly around worship, so that it is very, uh, I think, of the, the place that you're in. It's a great approach. Honestly, Reverend Yolanda, I'm so excited. Thank now, you. I mean, this is something that's happening this Friday, so it's taken a long time to get here, but I know that there's excitement from you and the whole team to be here in Seattle. Tell us a little bit about that because this is going to be amazing on Friday. Yeah. So we're going to, we, again, because we want to have a conversation about the people. So we're going to talk about what it means for Black women in Seattle to be erased and uh, hyper visual, visualized in the space. We're really excited to really connect with people in new ways. And we always name, particularly in the Seattle community, we want to name this as the beginning of our work and not the end. So our hope um, in the kind of year to come is to launch something called the Black Girl Magic Academy that's going to be focused on helping provide positive identity formation for black girls between 13 and 17. Mm -hmm. So we're going to use this as a launching point for our work um, in the larger community. We're excited to, I mean, Seattle's just like a, it has its own energy. And so the ability to continue to experience black Seattle, to see how folks are rooted in this space and it, it gives us new energy. So we're really glad to be here. Well, we are glad to have you. And we're really glad that you were able to take some time out of your busy schedule to join us right here in the Black Media Matters studio. Right here at Converge <laughs> Media for the Morning Update Show. We really appreciate you. I know uh, Salman has the link. He'll be dropping in the comments. But you can look right there in that camera. Make sure people know how to follow uh, Beyonce Mass and you and how they can get the ticket to the worship service happening on Friday. So absolutely go uh, to www.beyoncemass.com. It'll keep you abreast of where we're going to be. We also have the larger nonprofit that we're launching that includes the Black Girl Magic Academy. So you can go to www.womanistgate.org. Um, you can find the information about this Beyonce Mass uh, on our Facebook page, the Beyonce Mass. Search for the Beyonce Mass. Um, and you'll find the link to brown paper tickets where we have tickets left. Tickets are going incredibly fast. So we encourage you to get your tickets now, but only get what you need so you don't keep someone from coming and experiencing this worship service with us. Oh, Reverend Yolanda Norton, thank you so much. Thank you. I I'm trying to figure out right now if I got time in my schedule to be there. I would love to be able to see all of this happen and to participate. I just appreciate you for taking time to join me today. And, and you, you know, as, as you just said, this is just the beginning. We're going to continue to stay connected. <laughs> That's right. So right on. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. <laughs> oh, amazing show today, you guys. And I just got to say the energy is in the building. And the Black Girl Magic is happening right here in the Black Media Matters studios. Um, you know, tomorrow I get to be back here in the studios. We have Norman Garrett is going to be joining us from Marriage of Figaro uh, Opera that is happening at Seattle Opera House. So excited to have him join us tomorrow. Uh, we also are going to be having um, my, oh, my, my girl, Vivian Phillips. I know we got the overlay from Ms. Vivian Phillips. We're going to be talking about the doors. It is 
a uh, fundraiser. And so we're so excited that Vivian is going to be on to join us as well. Um, And you guys, tonight, of course, um, episode seven of Art of the Matter is going to be popping off with Carolyn Hit. You guys have been seeing that commercial. Make sure that you guys uh, stay tuned right here on Converge, 6 p.m. My girl T-Dub is diving in with Carolyn Hit and uh, talking about the studios that Carolyn has over there. So you guys, please make sure you guys, you know, stay engaged with all these amazing shows we have at Converge. As always, for me, I want y'all to see yourself as a part of the solution. I think it's so key. We all are better off when all of us bring our brilliance into this melting pot. I love to call it a toss salad because we all hold our own ingredients, right? But let's bring your energy in. Find a way to be a part of this. Uh, these solutions out here in the world. They are needed. Your energy is very much needed. And as Omari would always say, go forward in your purpose. Go forward in your humanity. Until tomorrow at 11 a.m. Peace. thousand little steps to go what do i fear after all these years lord knows i don't even know i've been running on the edge of a sundial sleeping in the shadow i've been begging you to see me then hiding beyond the unreachable looking now left on a right hand
Media produces culturally relevant content for Black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.